That's Matthew 9 and Galatians 1. I had come across this passage in Galatians 1 yesterday evening. I wrote it down on my notes, and then I never got it into my sermon notes. And then I was sitting up here before evening service trying to remember what epistle of Paul was that passage that I had found. And thankfully, the Lord brought it to remembrance um, for me. So let's read Matthew 9, 9 through 13. Uh, be remi- and then be reminded of what we looked at this morning and then look at Galatians 1, one simple verse uh, to help us with that. Matthew 9, verse 9. As Jesus passed on from here, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, we we spent this morning on verse 9 looking at the effective power of the call of Christ to those who uh, are his disciples. And we saw it in the context of Matthew. And I mentioned Paul this morning as well, but Paul makes a very clear statement in Galatians 1 verse 15. And I just want to use this to sum up the effective call of Christ to his disciples. Galatians 1 15. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me. We'll just stop there. Now, there is so much poured out into that sentence. Uh, we see, you know, the beginning of verse 15. Uh, we do... we. Uh, we see the setting apart of Paul before he was born. Um, we see the grace of God in the calling of Paul out of sin and self-righteousness. And, and it was by God's pleasure he was pleased to reveal his son to him. And I thought that was a good summation of what we looked at this morning. So we go, go back to Matthew, and we get it really into the story in verse 10 through 13, or we should say the incident, I guess. This is uh, the second dust-up that Jesus has had with some Jews, and the, the dust-up starting in Matthew 9, he had a little dust-up with the scribes, who are, in a sense, followers of the Pharisees, which is who Jesus gets in a little... Uh, dust up with here in this section. Um, And what Jesus ends up doing is, in the back and forth, is correcting the Pharisees, giving them a correction. But in order to understand the correction, we've got to look at verses 10 and 11 to see where uh, the dust up takes place. Look at verse 10. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Okay, so there it is. There there is the problem the Pharisees have with Jesus. So in, in Luke, we're told that this is at Matthew's house. Right? Matthew doesn't say this, but Luke says that after Jesus called Matthew, Matthew had a get-together at his place. And so 
And if you read further along in this section, this is who's at Matthew's house, or who who's at Matthew's house, but also observing what's going on at Matthew's house. You've got Jesus, a bunch of fishermen. You've got some greedy tax collectors, a group that are just called sinners. You've also got Pharisees, the religious leaders of the Jews of that day. But then you also will see, as we look further on in 9, you've got some disciples of John that are present at this get-together. So this is quite the crowd when you think about it. Um, And if you just think about it from the perspective of Jesus' disciples, it's quite a crowd. Uh, And then, of course, Jesus himself, a a carpenter. Um, So that's what we've got going on. Jesus has received this invitation from Matthew. Not only has Jesus received this invitation, but the disciples that he's called already have come. Matthew wants his tax-collecting buddies to come and see and hear about this Jesus, right? So it's not as if he's abandoned those those people, but he wants them to know Christ as well. So he invites them. Now there is there is some some things we could talk about with that. Do you abandon your old friends uh, when you um, when you come to Christ? When you're um, converted and regenerated, do you keep hanging out with the old people or do you ditch them? You know, what do you do? Well, Matthew obviously doesn't ditch them completely, but he brings them to his house to continue in fellowship with them for the sake of Christ, for the sake of them knowing Christ. And so it can get a little tricky. If Matthew keeps hanging out with these people and they keep pulling him back into his old tax collecting ways, then he might have a problem to deal with. But he does not abandon the sinners that are in his life because he finds Christ. But yet he continues to break bread with them so that he can reveal Christ to them. All right? So that's just kind of a thought that's there. But then the Pharisees see this going on. They see this crowd. They see Jesus and who he's hanging out with. And they get, they get a little upset. Now why... I hadn't really thought about it much until studying this passage. Why would they care about who Jesus hangs out with? I hadn't really thought about that until this weekend. Why would they care who Jesus hangs out with? And I, I, th- I think as you observe what they say, it's because they in some sense... Uh, see Jesus for who he is in comparison to who they are. So hang with me here. What do they call him? Teacher. So they acknowledge, because to be called a teacher in this time frame was was to be exalted to some level that you are a teacher of the law of God. You know something about God and his law. And so all the Pharisees were rabbis or teachers as well, right? And they had disciples. So they at some level saw, hey, he's a teacher, a rabbi like us. We see he has knowledge, okay? So they can relate to that. But then also they can relate to the fact that whether they want to admit it or not, that he is righteous. What do they think they are? Righteous. So it... To me, it seems as if, why would they care about what Jesus is doing? Well, because they do see him on some level as someone who is exalted as a righteous teacher. But you can't say, oh, good for them, because they see themselves as righteous teachers. And so they're like, no, 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 you've got it all wrong. You shouldn't be hanging out with these people. Be like us and pray that you're not like these people, right? Which is another parable uh, later in Luke. And so they, they rebuke Jesus, but not to his face. They speak to his disciples. Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now that should tell you something, about, and we'll talk about this a little bit more later. That should tell you something about what it means to eat with someone. That says a lot. To eat with someone 
says you desire fellowship from from this perspective that you desire fellowship with them that you seek communion with them uh, paul says at one point i didn't i it's coming to my mind when speaking to the wicked or the hypocrite in the church it says don't even eat with them if anybody knows what a letter that is i don't think it it might be corinthians but i don't think it is anyway to not even eat with with such a one and so you've also got the pharisees in the back of their mind who desire uh, traditional righteousness and, clean, and, and um, ceremonial cleanliness, and so they're gonna they're gonna wash their hands of anybody who might be unclean or unholy, a sinner or a tax collector. Um, but we also have got to understand what's what Jesus is doing and what the disciples are doing, because it doesn't really make sense if we don't understand why Matthew wanted other tax collectors and sinners to come see Jesus and why disciples come in fellowship and eat with Jesus. So if, here's three things that are, are what I wrote down are benefits of being called by Christ. All right, three benefits of being called by Christ. Number one, fellowship with Christ. That's what Matthew now has. That's what the disciples have. That's what Matthew wants for his tax collecting and sin and friends is for them to have communion with Christ, fellowship with Christ. And can you name a few ways that we are united with Christ? Uh, let me give you one and then see if you can come up with any more. Uh, we have fellowship with Christ who is our elder brother. As Christ calls us, he is our elder brother. Can you think of any more? Our priest, well, that's a good one. And we could probably go through the other offices, our king and our, our a prophet. What are some other ways that we find fellowship? So you have union and communion with your spouse, right? He's our bridegroom and we're the bride. That's, I know we can just say that's true, but think about the reality. You know, think about Ephesians 5, how wonderful it is that you share in this relationship with Christ as he being your husband. Right? And what is he doing to his bride? Getting her ready. Getting her ready, beautifying her. And what does that mean? Erasing all the spots and the the blemishes he's presenting us in order to present us holy and blameless before the father right that's what the husband is doing to the bride that's what christ is doing to the disciples that's what jesus is doing to matthew that's what matthew wants to happen to his tax collecting and sending friends and the last one that i thought of was um our fellowship with christ we as his body and he our head right what is a body without a head? The second thing that these who are surrounding Jesus at this table, eating with him, not only do they have fellowship with Christ, but as they fellowship with Christ, they learn from Christ. They learn from Christ. It's not it's not it's not just casual friendship, hanging out, talking about general things. But they're now disciples. Matthew is now a disciple. What is a disciple? A learner. A learner. And what are they ultimately wanting to learn? They want to be like him. So that kind of gives you an idea of why maybe the Pharisees also say, Hey, you want these sinners to follow and be like you? That doesn't make any sense. Well, not to them it doesn't. We'll get we'll we'll get to that point in a minute. And the third thing is so you got fellowship with Christ, learn from Christ, but then the third aspect is fellowship with other disciples. See Jesus, they're not they're not they're not let me say this the right way. Well you and I, we we have Christ, but we also have one another. 
But what makes that special? Not that you're someone or that you're someone here or someone there, but that you are a part of the body of Christ. You have significance for one another because you're united with Christ. Not because you're a special person or you're good at this or good at that. You have, in your union with Christ, you being brought into Christ, me be, I now am gifted this way. You're now gifted this way. Why? Because we have been brought into Christ. And so we're here for one another. Um, Matthew's hoping to bring other tax collectors and sinners into that uh, communion. So communion with Christ, education from Christ, and fellowship with other Christians. So the Pharisees grumble when they see all this going on. Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? They have to see Jesus in some sort of elevated way or they wouldn't care. Uh, Jesus hears this, verse 12, but when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Jesus hears their, I want to say, Luke calls it grumbling. I thought I wrote that down, but I guess I didn't. He hears them talking about who he's fellowshipping with. And what does he do? He recalls a passage of, a passage of Scripture from Hosea. In the Old Testament. Now, this is a side note. That's the characteristic of a Christian as well, a follower of Christ. When living and life happens, like Jesus is able to recall a passage to help him in that situation, that's that's our that's how we live. That's how we ought to live, um, hiding God's word in our heart, so that we're armed with the sword of truth. Just like Jesus is. He doesn't, he comes back at them with scripture. Um, Hosea 6 6, of all things, which probably is a little neglected in our Bible reading time. Um, let's, let's go there. Let's go to uh, Hosea 6. be right after Daniel. Now, um, there, there's two... Uh, understand this. Jesus wasn't... This wasn't Sunday school class where Jesus says, oh, let me help you. Let's look at Hosea 6.6. He says, that, he says, before we look at it, he says this, go and learn. They are Pharisees. They're educated in the scripture. But Jesus says, not really. He says, why don't you leave and go study this passage a little bit? So it's a sarcastic shot to the heart of the Pharisees in that sense. But I would assume that they know enough to realize that it's not just go and learn is insulting, but the fact that he related Hosea 6 or Hosea at all, was an insulting statement from Jesus. Why? Because Hosea, the theme of Hosea is the Israelites' unfaithfulness to God. Hosea is about the Jews, what ultimately we would call idolatry, but God in Hosea labels adultery. Right? goes back to that union and fellowship with God as a husband and a wife. God being the husband and Israel being the bride. And what is he saying about Israel? But they are unfaithful with other gods while still pretending, or actually not pretending, but while giving sacrifice to Yahweh. So they're running around on God, but yet trying to pretend that everything's good. And so for Jesus to say, hey, why don't you go check out Hosea? It's, they probably understood to some degree what, what he was getting at. Now look at 6.6. Uh, at six, six. So this is God speaking 
through the prophet Hosea. For I desire steadfast love. That's hesed, which we've talked about in Psalm 5. For I desire steadfast love, or mercy, depending on your translation, and not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offering. So just like a psalm, like we've seen, we've got two separate phrases almost communicating the same thing in in a similar form. You have one thing that God desires versus the thing he's not so much worried about. The first line, he desires hesed, covenantal faithfulness, steadfast love or mercy, and not sacrifice. Uh, He desires the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. He tells the Pharisees who say, you know what, you shouldn't be hanging out with these sinners. He says, go and learn Hosea 6.6. Check out your unfaithfulness to God and your ignorance of the truth of who God is. Right, because I, I think it's not, I don't think it's just poetic language that he pairs up steadfast love and knowledge of God. This has sort of been a theme for us for the last few weeks. right? The wicked last week were who? Those who, and how do we say it? Uh, those who were opposed to God because they truly did not know God. right? And that's what Hosea 6 is. He says, I desire something... And that's steadfast love, and you can only know that or do that if you had knowledge of who I was. I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Um, So what God is saying to Israel in Hosea and what Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, who we haven't got... We haven't really looked a lot about how the Pharisees behave. We did in the Sermon on the Mount uh, a little bit when we talked about their um, the way that they get, they gave in public, the way they prayed their prayers in public, right? The way they made their fasting public, all of these outward things that they were doing, very similar to what we see in Hosea, the sacrifices and the burnt offerings. But what Jesus is saying to them, I he says. I see past your outward behaviors, and I can see the coldness, the deadness of your heart. Right? I see through it. Like We can all see the external, but what I care about is the internal. You sacrifice regularly, but you fail to love. You fail to show mercy. Ultimately, what, is, what do they do? They fail to imitate God, because doesn't, isn't God the one... This is where I've not really I didn't I've I had a difficulty with this because he God says in Hosea 6, I desire steadfast love. But I'm like, wait, wait, don't you? Aren't you the one who gives steadfast love? So I, I had a difficulty with that. And then Ephesians 5 hit me. Imitate God. That's what we're called to do. Is that what not all of God's people have been called to do from from uh, Abraham to now, is God's people are to imitate God. Be holy, he told he told Israel, as I am holy. Peter ref, ref, uh, repeats that. Be holy as I am holy. Ephesians five, imitate God. Can't get any plainer than that. And so God says, I desire steadfast love. I desire to see the steadfast love in you, the mercy in you, because that's who I am. The knowledge of God. Like if you knew who I was, you would know it's mercy and love that I truly care about. Faithfulness that I truly care about. And that's what Jesus is getting them to. They fail to imitate God. You think about Israel going into the promised land. How are they to imitate God? What, what tool did God give Israel as they went to the promised land so that they would imitate God? I know you know it. The law. 
his commandments. Right? What has he done in the New Testament? In, in, a court, uh, in, in the context of the law. He's written it on our hearts. Right? God's given his word to conform us to himself. And if you think about, think about, okay, so the new covenant is, is better because God deals with the internal. He deals with the heart, right? Um, but think about the law in itself because Israel in Isaiah and Hosea and even these guys are keeping it, keeping it externally right but when you sum up the law does it point to external keeping what does it point to what is the summation of the law love god love others you can't fake that at least you can't fake it before the lord right so the you can not lie you could do all that stuff not murder Jesus even said, you've heard it said, don't do this, don't do this, don't do that, right? But what does he say? What I really care about is what's going on in the heart. And that's what he's trying to tell these Pharisees. You need to go and learn that it's what's going on inside. i got to bring this up because we brought it up at the men's meeting. And it's just, it's killing me. Um... I've, I've been listening to this thing. Uh, it's a it's a it's a something on Exodus, and there is a uh, Orthodox Jew within the discussion about what's going on in Exodus. Uh, and I, I've heard him say multiple times, and I've heard even another Orthodox Jew say it multiple times that really Judaism is a matter of action, while Christianity is a matter of internal faith, right? That that the Old Testament, the Torah, doesn't address the internal. I was like, Jose is really clear here. Like it, it, it's super clear. It's not does it's not sacrifice and burnt offerings. I'm 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 concerned with who you are. Right? It's not what you're doing, it's your being that God mostly is concerned with. But let's not get this wrong. But you still must do. Jesus isn't saying, God doesn't say, never give me sacrifices, never provide burnt offerings, just love everyone. If that was the case, he wouldn't have given. Uh, there would be no book of Leviticus or Numbers or Deuteronomy that explains how they are to sacrifice and give burnt offerings. Right? But out of their being, they will do. That That's the way it's supposed to flow. Jesus would later rebuke the Pharisees by telling them that they shine up who they are like you would wash the outside of a cup while leaving the inside dirty. That's that's us coming to church and then leaving and still being an unrepentant sin. Weekly, we're washing the cup, the outside. All the while, we leave and we're still filthy inside. Uh, he would later, I think in that same section, call the Pharisees a whitewashed tomb. Meaning they're, they're, they've cleaned up the tomb, but inside of it are dead, rotting people. Right? And Matthew's laid the groundwork throughout his gospel already regarding the inner being more important than the outer, the Beatitudes 
in themselves tell us this, that we're to be poor in spirit. We're to be those who mourn, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Uh, We're blessed if we're persecuted. That definitely shows us that inner is greater than outer. Uh, We're told to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things are to be added to you. Uh, And as we mentioned earlier, Jesus says, you've heard it say, you know, don't murder, don't commit adultery. But I say, it's what's in the heart that matters. Don't be concerned with the outside of the cup if the inside is filthy. So this is a question that I think for us to ponder and to reflect on prayerfully. In many ways, and there are three things to think about. I'll give us three things to think about outside of this question. Are you fixated on the external? Are you, nobody else, are you fixated on the external? Are you caught up in the doing and you're rotting on the inside? Now, that is for an, for an unbeliever who's trying to be a Christian, that is what they are. They're a show on the outside, but they're dead on the inside. But I also think there can be seasons in a true believer's life where they fall into that. But by the grace of God, he will shake you out of it. But it's not a magic pill. You have to cry out to the Lord, show me, help me, reveal to me where I am only doing and forgetting about steadfast love, mercy, faithfulness. Where is my heart rotting? This, you could ask it this way. Do you do religious acts but love not God? Do you speak religious words but love not others? That's the quickest way to become a dead church. That's the quickest way for a church to die is to be doing and not being. Um, That's a church of hypocrisy. So three things to think about that. Number one, do not be proud, but fear. That's Romans 11. Um, Do not be proud, but fear. And what does this go back to? Humility which goes back to the effective call of God in your life. Remember 1 Corinthians 1, consider your calling. What did he call us? He called us um, weak, low, and despised. We weren't powerful, noble, or wise, but he chose what is foolish, weak, and low, and despised. And that's not to, that's not to give us poor self-esteem, but that's to humble us so that we might not be proud and that we can continue to fear God. You know, in Ephesians 1, Ephesians 1 says that we were predestined for adoption into the family of God through Jesus Christ, according to what? The purpose of His will, according to the praise of His glorious grace. That keeps us humble and not proud. That keeps us in awe and fear of God. When you start acting like the Pharisees, when you think you're something, when you think you've done something, is when you forget you owe it all to the grace of God. And that's when you start pointing fingers. That's when you start judging other people's sin with the log in your eye. So don't be proud, but fear. Number two, never settle. And this is a reference to that God desires the knowledge of God, not burnt offering. Peter and Paul were in agreement that Christians are to grow in the knowledge in the Lord Jesus Christ. And they never said that you're to stop. They never said to stop. The pride of the hypocrite says, I know it all. When in reality, what Jesus told the Pharisees is that you know nothing. Whenever we think we know it all, it's when we actually don't know anything. God has revealed himself. 
That's the thing. God's revealed himself through this book and through his son. And if he's given us a book, it's we we're to we aren't to draw the conclu- to, we aren't to draw, to draw the conclusion that at some point we can set it aside. Right? That's not that doesn't that just doesn't make any sense. That he doesn't want us to continue in our learning of understanding him, his purposes, and his commandments and his will. Uh, the the phrase is a popular phrase in Latin. It's semper reformata, which means always reforming. And that's what we should be doing as individuals in a church until we see the Lord. And the third thing, so the first was do not be proud but fear. The second, never settle. Third, then imitate God. Like I said, we're not talking we're not saying that the outer is bad. Jesus is not saying that doing is wrong, that your acts of service and worship are not important. Your doing should come from your being and your knowing. The outer acts are simply an expression of the internal condition. Right? That's what baptism is, is it not? Now, the greatest way to imitate God is love. And if you look at Ephesians 1, that's exactly what he tells us. Um, He then goes on and talks about sexual immorality and hate and all this other stuff. But the first thing he tells us, Paul tells us when he tells us to imitate God, is to love. He says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Um, Paul, was it Paul? Let's see, who am I thinking here? Paul in 1 Corinthians 13, right? Takes Hosea a bit further. So Hosea says, I don't deserve, that God is like, I, I don't want your burnt offerings if you don't have steadfast love and the knowledge of God. Paul goes a step further and he goes, I don't care if you burn yourself as an offering. If you do not have love, it's in vain. Right? If 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 we are not imitator, imitators of God and his love and his steadfast love, his mercy and his faithfulness, we are nothing um as christians you read especially paul's epistles we are shown in 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 the epistles the epistles are really how tell us a lot of how we are to behave as a body as a church and what is the thing we see over and over and over again love one another and it's directly to to us and not just talking about random in general, which they, there there is that emphasis. Uh, but you you get something like you get something like Hebrews thirteen that says uh, let brotherly love continue. You get Romans twelve that says let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, outdoing one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit. Rejoice and serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. If we cannot act in love and mercy to one another, then we're hopeless outside of these walls. If we can't love one another here, we are in for big trouble out there. The Lord's, and here's the thing, the Lord has brought more into our church. He's brought more people to love in the last two years. Thanks be to God. Right? He's brought more into covenant with us. And the more that comes, the more this needs to hold true. The more we're tested and tried in our imitating God and loving one another. In our unity. That's how that That's how that hymn that I butchered so well uh, this morning... That's how it ends. I, no, no, that was the hint, that was the verse that Sylvia wanted to take out. That was uh, I'm referring to.
Thou hast the true and perfect gentleness. No harshness hast thou and no bitterness. O grant to us, that would be the church, those who are singing this hymn, O grant to us the grace we find in thee, so we need what he has, right, that we may dwell in perfect unity. Unity. It's a good one. In our growing as a church, if if we if we are unfaithful it will not bring blessing it will bring curse and it will get ugly this is our call and that's to imitate god in our relationships with one another uh, i i'm not going to do it to you but write this down go and read first john 2 the end of two and the beginning of three. That passage we read this morning. The end of two, all the way through three, I mean. And look for the God affecting the internal, the heart, and then the external result from it in that section. I hadn't really done it, but as we were reading it this morning, I literally wanted to stop and start preaching. Because it's everywhere in that section. And what is the... If someone says, I'm not sure if I'm a Christian, where do you normally send them? 1 John. So what is he telling us in 1 John? If, the, if God has affected the inside, this is what comes out of it. Right? Okay, we've got to look at one. I Just one of them. Okay, well, just the first few verses. 1 John 2, 28. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. So there's the external. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness, that's the things we see, what? Has been born of him. There's the internal. The working internally by God and the Spirit is manifested in the practicing of righteousness. Now, if you read the rest of chapter 3, and probably even 4, you will see that pattern. A work of God on the inside, and it's manifested on the outside. By this it is evident who are the children of God, and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So go go and spend some time in, the, in that chapter this week. Okay. That was all of Jesus' correction to the Pharisees. Now, I'm, I just want to very quickly give you... The explanation, and what is the explanation? It's that he wants to explain to them his purpose as the Messiah, because they don't get it, which rightfully we understand, because they were more concerned about burnt offerings rather than knowledge, God's knowledge, the knowledge of God. So sandwiched in between in these last two verses, sandwiched in between the I desire mercy and not sacrifice, he explains to them his purpose as messiah verse 12 but when he heard it he said those who are well have no need of a physician but those who are sick and then he finishes for i came not to call the righteous but sinners so here's here's what you've got to understand the whole physician statement if you didn't know who a doctor was or you didn't know the point of a physician and you were hanging out with this guy, and he's like, yeah, I'm going to go see somebody that's got the flu. And then I'm going to go hang out with somebody who's got COVID. And then there's this guy who's got the measles. I'm going to go see him. And you go, hey, dude, why are you hanging out with these people? You're ignorant of what a doctor is, and so you don't get it. You're like, you're going to get sick, man. This is not right. 
they don't understand his purpose as Messiah. You understand? Because if they did, they would be like, hey, you're a sinner. Come see this guy. This guy is hanging out with sinners like a doctor hangs out with sick people. Because the doctor has got the cure. Jesus has got the cure for the sinner. That's why he's hanging out with them. And ultimately, that's why they want to hang out with him. So the Pharisees, I'm sure they weren't reclining at table with Jesus. Right? Why? Well, they're not sick. They are self-proclaimed healthy. Or as Jesus says in the last verse, righteous. So Jesus has to explain to them why they come, the sinners come to him, and why he wants to be around sinners. Uh, And he doubles down and he says, he doubles down to them and says, not only do we hang out, but they're the only ones I call. For I have not to, I have come not to, I've came not to call the righteous, but sinners. That's the only people I'm calling. The righteous don't need me. They don't need a Messiah. They don't need a Savior to take away their sins. Just like a well person doesn't need a doctor. And again, we remember who Jesus calls. The weak, the low, the despised, the nothing. For what reason does he say? To shame the strong, the noble, and the wise. And powerful. You can take the word righteous out of that last sentence and just insert proud. Are you a proud person? If you're a proud person, you might be a self righteous person. Because a, prou- a proud person isn't willing to accept their sin. Jesus, but we all, and I'll, we'll just stop here. Jesus doesn't call the sinners just to come hang out with him. Like I said earlier, the tax collectors aren't hanging out with Jesus trying to scheme up how they can get more money out of collecting taxes. When Jesus calls someone, what does he call them to? Say it out loud. Repentance. Holiness. Christ-likeness. We, there's a our our society thinks that Jesus our, not our society our cultural Christianity our our soft churches thinks that Jesus just hangs out with sinners they just hang out right it has nothing to do with actually calling them to the carpet about their sin no one just hangs out with Jesus and then goes and keeps on sinning. Go read 1 John chapter 3. Right? And so Jesus, when he calls someone, like he called Matthew, like he's called you and I, he's called us to live a certain way of life. And that's steadfast love, mercy, faithfulness, to imitate him. Matthew's not turning, or Matthew is turning from his, you know, Jesus, that Jesus hung out with prostitutes. And when the prostitutes encountered them, they weren't trying to be all sneaky. But what did the prostitutes do? They wept at his feet, right? They turned from their sin to the one who forgives him. All right, last verse, and we'll we'll be done. Bring in the calling. Bring in the the idea of sin and righteousness. 2 Peter chapter 1. Second Peter chapter one, verse three. I'm just going to read it. One or three through eleven. No comment. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us 
to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them, that would be the promises, you may become partakers of the divine nature. See, they're different. Having escaped from the corruption that is the world because of sinful desire, for this very reason, make every effort See, this is the outward. This is the outward. It's, it's good to do the, the things we're called to do. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, your virtue with knowledge, your knowledge with self-control, the self-control with steadfastness, and the steadfastness with godliness, and the godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance to the eternal kingdom of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what he's called us to. I think it would be wise of us to meditate and dwell on that section. But not right now. Any thoughts or questions?